Whenever the topic of angels comes up in my faith community, there is a story we like to tell. So there is in the Australian outback a famous stretch of road called the Birdsville Track, which is as outback as you get in terms of isolation and heat and dust and stray camels. Well, one of the parishioners we knew was travelling along this track when his tyres blew. This was a disaster and very dangerous to be stranded out there because very few people actually travelled along the route and you could be waiting there for a very long time for someone in the heat and everything. However, out of the blue and seemingly coming from off the main road, a big four-wheel drive manned by a group of big indigenous Australians suddenly appeared. Without saying a word, they were able swiftly to replace the blown tyre and get the family's car back on track. Out of gratitude, the parishioner's family took a quick photo with these four men before they left on their way, also without saying a word. Later on, when the photos were developing of the family holiday, all the other photos of their holiday developed, except the ones that were taken of the Aboriginal men, which appeared blank. Now, what do you make of this story? Were the four men that emerged out of the blue just happened to be passing by? This, of course, is entirely possible. However, the surrealness and timeliness of the encounter really left a spiritual mark on this family. Because encounters like this, and many other stories told by others, leaves us wondering, can we really be visited by angels? You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. Hi friends and welcome to today's rather dramatic journey on the Myth Pilgrim because in the course of this episode we'll span the depths of hell to the heights of heaven learning about both the sniggering minions of the devil but also the highest seraphim singing in the heavens holy holy holy. Indeed I hope today will be as eye-opening as it is educational for despite the depictions of angels and demons in popular art very little is actually often known about them nor do we even acknowledge their role and mission within God's created order. But the reason I felt drawn to present on this topic, on the Myth Pilgrim, is because our myths and fairy tales intuitively communicate more evidence of their existence than your average parish. Somehow our favourite magical tales intuit that the world is not purely physical, and also that the physical world can be influenced by beings beyond our sight, both in the positive and in the negative. On the positive, we see examples like Pocahontas being aided by the mysterious wind, Merida is aided by the will-o'-the-wisps, Mulan is aided by Mushu the dragon, Cinderella is aided by the fairy godmother, Frodo is aided by the elves, Elsa is aided by Olaf the snowman, Elsa too is aided by the four elemental spirits, Peter Pan is aided by the pixie Tinkerbell, sort of. Um, Aladdin is aided by the genie. Harry Potter is aided by his father's Patronus. Moana is aided like, by the whole ocean, etc, etc. At the same time, the chief villains also have evil spiritual sidekicks that often give them that extra bit of power to do their devious deeds. 
Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty has Diablo the Raven, the Queen in Snow White has the Magic Mirror, Saruman from The Lord of the Rings has the Palantir, and Rasputin from Anastasia has pretty much the Devil and all his legions. See, our myths and fairy tales remind us what the Celtic Christians used to say. The world is a porous and thin place, permeable by the spiritual realm. Whether we personally feel at peace or in conflict, there is a spiritual battle taking place which draws in the whole of creation, including us. This certain enchantedness of creation is not only accepted within Catholicism, but it is celebrated. We who have the most developed teaching of angelology as well as demonology, drawing from the accounts found in the scriptures, but also developed over time by theologians and the many personal experiences of our saints. I'll divide up today's episode into two sections then, beginning firstly with angels, then moving into fallen angels, before finally offering some reflections on their significance on this pilgrimage here on earth. Part 1. On Angels. Angelology. I think that's how you pronounce that word. Angels are very real, and indeed their existence has always been maintained by the Catholic Church, and certainly by Jesus. Our Catechism says that, quote, The existence of the spiritual non-corporeal beings that sacred scripture usually calls angels is a truth of faith. The witness of scripture is as clear as the unanimity of tradition. End quote. And that's Catechism 328, if you're interested. However, what angels actually look like and do has largely been distorted by popular culture. Most people tend to think of beautiful blonde people in white gowns and wings that carry a harp and make choiry sounds. Or perhaps you think of those chubby little cherubs that float around the clouds and cause mischief. Uh, their actual names, incidentally, are called putto. While there is a little biblical merit to such images, the reality is that angels would appear as rather startling otherworldly creatures whose first words upon appearance in the Bible tended to be, do not be afraid. This startling otherworldliness is evident in the angels' appearance to Mary, uh, when the angels appeared to the shepherds, to the women on Easter morning, and even the angel that appears to John in the book of Revelation, all of which began with, do not be afraid. See, in the natural order of God's creation, angels should overwhelm us because they are pure spirits and intellects. They actually have no bodies, and they can only take on physicalness so that they can actually be detected by us. Their actual purpose in creation is given away by their name, angelos, which means messenger. The actual mission and glory of the angels is to serve God and to minister his will to all of creation. You may be interested to know that there are definitely more angels in God's creation than there are people, because Jesus attests in Matthew 18 that each human soul has a guardian angel, which suggests that there are at least an equal amount of angels as people. But then you add the other hosts of angels that are serving God in heaven that are apart from our individual guardian angels. You may also be interested to know that St. Thomas Aquinas, having studied and categorized the angel appearances in the Bible, deduced that there are nine tiers or nine choirs of angels which are arranged in a sort of hierarchy. While the description of each tier is actually pretty cool, I won't go into detail here, but only to read out the hierarchy in descending order. Closest to God are the mighty seraphim, cherubim and thrones. And then the next set there are 
dominions, virtues, and powers. And then much closer ties with us here on Earth are the principalities, archangels, and then angels. Hmm. Okay, so what's the significance of angelic existence? Well, if we examine the name of the four angels mentioned in the Bible, Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, and Uriel, you can see that they all end their names with E-L, L, which means God in Hebrew. There's Michael, the archangel who was the leader of heaven's armies, a name which means who is like God. Gabriel, who appears to Mary in the Annunciation, is a name that means the power of God. Raphael, who helps Tobit and his family in the Old Testament, is a name which means God has healed. And Uriel, who in tradition is the name of the angel who guards the entry into Eden, which means the fire of God. You can see that these good angels all live out their lives and vocation in perfect reference to God. And hence, we can know that they are benevolent to us mortals and will for us whatever God wills for us. This is why so many of our saints in the Catholic traditions speak frequently of angels and speak to angels and ask favours of them, as if it were second nature. Because it is. Anyone or anything that is living in the will of God is family. The great missionary St. Francis Xavier was very devoted to his guardian angel and entrusted all of his missionary work in Japan to the guardian angels of each citizen. St. John Bosco, the founder of the Salesians, recognized his angel appearing often as a fearsome-looking dog that would often come just when he needed protection or some service. Saint Gemma Galgani is now very famous for having an almost conversational style relationship with her angel who would counsel her, warn her and threaten to leave her side when she was in sin while at the same time reminding her of the will of God. And then Saint Jose Maria Escobar, the founder of Opus Dei, tells us, quote, Have confidence with your guardian angel, treat him as a dear friend and he will know how to do you a thousand services in the ordinary circumstances of each day. End quote. Of course, one cannot speak of guardian angels without mentioning the great Padre Pio, who encouraged his parishioners and penitents to speak with their angel often, and to even send their angels to him when they were in need. There is a famous story that recounts how one day in 1955, an Englishman named Cecil Humphrey Smith suffered a serious car accident and was mortally injured. Cecil's friend went swiftly to the post office to send a telegram to Padre Pio to ask for his prayers. But no sooner that he handed the telegram to the clerk, the clerk gave a telegram back to his friend from Padre Pio himself, assuring Cecil of his prayers. And even more astonishingly, Cecil fully recovers in that moment. When he later visits Padre Pio to thank him for his intercession and to ask how he got the telegram news so quickly, Padre Pio simply smiles and says, Do you think guardian angels are as slow as aeroplanes? We now turn our attention to the fallen angels, commonly referred to as demons. This is a topic that may make some of us uncomfortable, if only because we know so little about them, and also we underestimate how much authority we actually have over them in Jesus Christ. But C.S. Lewis posits that there are two extremes when it comes to the demonic that we want to avoid. 
One is to be totally ignorant of their existence and live our lives as if evil and temptation were merely a human construct. The other extreme is to become disproportionately obsessed with them and to be really afraid of them and to see a demon around every corner per se, or to even blame our own sin always on the demonic. Jesus certainly was in neither camp during his lifetime, for while he acknowledged demonic existence, he also knew his authority over them. And the demons certainly knew Jesus' authority over them. The many stories of holy men and women down the ages also reveal a healthy acknowledgement of the demonic, but also a certain detachment to their intimidation. I recall the famous story of the British evangelist Smith Wigglesworth, who having heard some strange kerfuffle in his place one night, went downstairs to investigate. Though the air turned cold and a foul stench was detected, when he saw the devil himself sitting on his rocking chair, he simply said, Oh, it's only you. And he blows out his candle and promptly goes back to bed. Fallen angels are a helpful title for demons because that's actually what they are. Angels that have fallen from their original dignity. Scripture tells us that every demon was once an angel in the service of God, starting of course with the devil himself, Lucifer, who theologians posit was the greatest of all the angels. Why the devil and his followers fell from grace is a bit speculative, but it has long been posited that Isaiah 14 was referring to him, which says, How you are fallen down from heaven, O day star, son of dawn! How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low! You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the throne of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. End quote. In other words, it was because of pride that the demons fell, echoing the same ambition that the serpent tries to tempt Eve with in the garden. The ambition to be like God. This, as you can see, is how demons are the polar opposite to angels. Because whereas the angels' identity came through their reference to God, Demons are defined by their non-reference to God, their refusal to reference God, wanting instead to be God. Hence they are hell-bent upon lies and deception and destruction and death to anyone who tries to follow the will of God. And let me state clearly, they are very good at doing this. Though they are fallen as angels, they still possess an intelligence and a will that is far superior to us humans, which is just one reason why the spiritual battle can never be fought on our own strength. Like with the angels, Catholic tradition maintains demons are ordered in a hierarchy. The most powerful seek lordship over entire legions in places and nations, while lesser demons are involved with everyday temptation of you and I. But it's important to name that these so-called lesser temptations are far more dangerous for the soul than the more dramatic expressions of demonic activity. By dramatic, I mean stuff like infestations, where a demon takes resident in a place or an object, to full-blown possessions, where a demon takes control over someone's will. The reason I say that ordinary temptations are far more dangerous for us is because it's easier to remain oblivious to demonic influence when it comes as gentle whispers and seductive lies.
for these gradually ensnare our souls without us realizing. Think back to your Star Wars, how the entire noble Jedi Council, and indeed the whole of the Old Republic, were seduced by the lies of Emperor Palpatine because he was so well disguised as a hero and a kindly old man. Had Emperor Palpatine just popped up as a Sith Lord, lightning pouring out from his palms, yes, he would have scared a few Jawa, but he would have been quashed immediately with little long-term damage and the Jedis would have maintained their dignity. Likewise, when a human experiences the more dramatic demonic manifestations, we clearly discern the devil's presence and fly in the other direction towards God, which is exactly what the demons don't want. Still, such talk of demonic activity may still leave some of us feeling quite uneasy and a little bit terrified. So I want to offer a few words of truth. Firstly, remember that all demons recognize and must ultimately submit to the authority of Jesus. There are many examples in the New Testament where Jesus clearly commands them to stay mute, to leave, or to give up their names. Those of us who live in Christ and are under his lordship have no need to fear demons. For while they may harass and intimidate us, they can never harm the soul. This remains the case even for the most possessed of possessed cases. A humble, repentant heart, one which welcomes the presence of Jesus, is the ultimate deterrent to all evil, period. We are not just helpless blank sponges that can simply become the prey to demons. Rather, our renowned exorcists remind us that demons must be invited in or given permission to stay. If, dear listener, you know that you have dabbled in any way in the occult, into things like wicker magic, seances, fortune tellers, tarot cards, Ouija boards, black or white magic, etc., the church encourages you to repent of such practices, confess your sins before God, and resolve never to entertain such practices again. It can happen, though, that some of us unwillingly inherit a property or a unit that feels unusually oppressed due to activities performed by previous occupants. If you feel this may be the case for you, have a conversation with a local priest. You can certainly come along and provide a blessing of your house and to claim it back for the kingdom of Jesus. On a lighter note, if that's the right thing to say, I love recalling that funny meme that Everyone mocks the Catholic priest today until they need an exorcist. Why I love this meme is because of the hidden implications behind its truth. The fact that exorcists are real proves that the spiritual realm is also real as well as the spiritual battle. It proves that Christ has given special authority to his priests for particular ministries. The very stories of these priests themselves prove the unmistakable power in the name of Jesus and proves the fear that demons actually have towards Mother Mary or anything Marian. Ultimately, God and his saints have ultimate authority over even the powers of hell. Before the power of God, the devil and his minions are merely grasshoppers shrinking away before a mighty lion. And before Mother Mary, Queen of the Angels, they are but mere fleeting shadows. This is truly good news.
So, how do we live out our everyday Christian walk, given the reality of the spiritual realm around us? Well, it might be helpful to survey some of the heroes in our favourite myths and fairy tales. What makes a Frodo and Pocahontas and Harry Potter such inspiring heroes is that they ultimately remained responsible for their actions, despite their enchanted aides and enemies. Cinderella didn't just rely on Fairy Godmother to live out her life, but rather it was Cinderella's virtue that drew the aid of her Fairy Godmother when the time was needed. And again, while Harry Potter's parents and uncle appeared spiritually by his side during the final battle, it was Harry's virtue that saves the wizarding world, not his spiritual aids. While Harry's family could inspire love in him, they couldn't fight the battle for him. So in a likewise ways for us, the angels and the saints can protect us and guide us, but they can't live out our choices for us or control what's in our hearts, for that is where personal free will kicks in. And in terms of the influence of the darker forces, a mythical example like Boromir in The Fellowship of the Ring proves that ultimately even he couldn't blame Sauron for falling under temptation of the ring. Rather, Boromir took personal responsibility for seizing Frodo's ring and accepted the consequences. It is his taking responsibility that ultimately leaves him a hero, even though he fails. In likewise way for us, while it's healthy to acknowledge how the enemy may be working to dismantle and tempt us, we cannot ever blame him for the sinful actions that we freely choose to partake in. The creatures of darkness, like the creatures of light, cannot make us do anything. Ultimately, you and I still remain free agents, choosing to cooperate with God and all his crew, or cooperate with the enemy and all his crew. It's a powerful thing, free will, but it's the most precious gift you and I will wield this side of heaven. If you'd like to brush up on St. Ignatius's tips on how to recognize and fight the temptation of the devil, I do suggest listening to episode 11 of The Myth Pilgrim, where I discuss in much detail just that. For your practical pilgrim exercise, I want to offer you some advice first offered by Padre Pio. When you feel the need to have a difficult conversation with someone, say your spouse or your boss, first invite your guardian angel to go ahead of you to speak with the guardian angel of the other party to get them to prepare the other person for the conversation. I can testify to you that in the times I've done this, that dreaded, difficult, awkward conversation melts away into something beautiful and life-giving and the anxiety normally surrounding both parties mysteriously disappears. In short, it really works, so I want to offer Padre Pio's recommendation to you, if only to strengthen the relationship between you and your guardian angel. Okay guys, I'll leave that with you. Until next time, journey forth, take care and God bless.